Hey team, it's Ando here. 2022 is a big year for Australian rugby, and we at Pick and Drive Rugby want to be in the thick of it, but we need your support. We want to attend post-match press conferences to ask your questions. We need more interviews with players and coaches to give you the insights that you want into the game they play in heaven. And we want better recording equipment to create a superior listening experience for you. If you like what we do, and let's be honest, even if you don't, please consider getting involved and sending us a tip. All donations will be put straight back into the podcast. We do this for love, not money, but every little bit counts. So please go to ko-fi.com slash pick and drive rugby. You can give us $1, you can give us 5 whatever is within your budget, we would be incredibly appreciative for. Thank you for your support. Let's get back to the pod. Wade Cooper, for the win, it's on its way, it's on its way, it's gone, Wade Cooper is the man. Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast, we're diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby, we're real, family friendly and positive, so get involved. Get involved. I'm your host, Ando. With me is co-host and podcast regular, Mitch. How's it going? Top notch, mate. Now, we are very excited because this is the first of two podcast episodes that will be dropping this week. So if you're listening to this, it's probably Tuesday morning or midday, likely your time. We do have another episode coming out tomorrow on Wednesday with the head coach of the Men's Sevens program, John Menenti. We've just finished recording, really great pod, some really interesting news dropping about new contracting systems they've got going over with the Rugby Sevens program. So much to get excited about. Make sure you tune in. Mitch, how have you been? I've been good. I've been good. It's been a long weekend here in Sydney, so that's been great to catch up on some of the rugby that's happened the last few weeks. Disappointing result over the weekend in the semi-final of Super Rugby. No doubt we will get to it later, though. So I'll keep my disappointment. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, Well, mate, we've got a couple of things we want to get through. But before we go and you start taking us through our socials, Super Brew, all that jazz, just wanted to say, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your support across the season, particularly on our coffee platform. So we do this for love, not money. And we have hugely appreciated your support over the previous weeks and months with people chipping a few dollars in left, right and center. Um, We did just want to erase it again. If you do like the pod and you do love what we do, then we would appreciate any, any little donations here and there that people may be putting out there. So if you can go to ko-fi.com slash pick and drive rugby, we'd appreciate any of your support and everything that comes in goes back into the podcast. Um, recently, we've purchased and had engraved a bunch of trophies for the tipping competition, which will be getting announced in about a week's time. Very exciting. So please consider donating. Mitch, social platforms and Superbrew. Fantastic. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Pick and Drive Rugby and we should come up. Uh, Just look for our logo. If you're listening to the podcast, you should see what it looks like. So do get involved there and give us a like, a follow, or a retweet. We'd love to hear from you on those, any of those platforms, really. Um, Diving into Super Brew this week, the yellow cap goes to Jumping Tim Slim, who is my brother. So well done to him. <laughs> well done, Tim. It's actually interesting. I don't know who's going to get the yellow cap this week because both Tim and Car865 have shared the points on 5.33. So not too sure how Super Brew works there in terms of who gets the points there, who gets the yellow cap. 
don't think I've ever seen two people get awarded it before. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see who does get it there. Um, and then an honorable mention to VDL Rugby 19, who came third on five points. If you look across to the overall leaderboard in first place, with one game to go, grand final next weekend, SDC is in first place on 107.16 points. Kirando in second place on 105 points, with Dan Mori in third on 104.25. So still able to be caught up the top there, SDC, yep. but it is yep. looking likely that they may... They may take out the whole comp. I mean, next week's game is going to be pretty hard to predict. It's going yeah. to go down to the final whistle, I think. So we it's going to be see. very, very difficult. Uh, I'm not even sure when we get to it, Hob, who I'll be tipping after make it up on the spot. Um, it's, it's going to be very, very tight, and it's going to be an absolute blockbuster of a match. It definitely will be. So what we're doing tonight, we're going to first dive into the Wallaroos game. So since we recorded the pod last week, there have been two games for the Wallaroos. So We'll chat through those. We'll then dive into our reviews of the semi-final games, the two games over the weekend. We might do a quick preview of the grand final this coming weekend. We have had the Wallabies 35-man squad announced this week, so we will definitely be dissecting that. If you are here to hear about the Wallabies squad, go to our show notes. We do have the timings in there, um, so it will say when we do talk about the Wallaby squad. We'll leave it to... Later in the pod, we have some more exciting things, I guess, in some ways to talk about before we get to it. <laughs> and then we'll uh, dive into the locker room and answer our fans' questions. All right. Well, mate, that all sounds great. Why don't we jump on into things? Let's go. Moving now to the Wallaroos games and the Pacific Four series has kicked off with two matches already played by the Wallaroos and a third and final game coming this weekend against Canada. But first off, we had the Silver Ferns playing or the Black Ferns, sorry, playing the Wallaroos on Monday, 12.45 over in New Zealand. And the Black Ferns came away 23-10 victors. Um, Wallaroos got out to an early lead before uh, the scoreline was then clawed back and the, the Kiwis ran away fairly dominant. Mitch, what were some of your takeaways from this game of things that the Wallaroos did well in areas they need to be improving in? Yeah, so the Wallaroos did really well. I think at halftime it was 10-3. to 3. Uh, So they did very well to be up and, and were looking quite dominant up in that first half. It was in the second half that the Black Ferns really came alive and started to put some things together and the Wallaroos started to fall off tackles and started to make some uncharacteristic mistakes, which allowed the New Zealanders back into the game. And when you give New Zealand a sniff in any form of rugby, they will take it and score points. So um, the Wallaroos were hanging in there and were in a lot of ways, the score doesn't actually reflect the game. I think it was a late try in the last few minutes of the game, which makes the score look a little bit worse than it probably was. The game was a lot tighter the Wallaroos were fighting a lot harder than the scoreline does suggest. Um, the, it was torrential rain as well, so there was a lot of handling errors from both sides. A few nerves as well. Uh, Australian team going up against a New Zealand team is always a massive occasion. The Wallaroos have never beaten the Black Ferns, so uh, at halftime, the fact that I don't think they had even actually gone into a half uh, ahead of the Black Ferns before either. So some good signs early on, but things just weren't quite clicking in that second half. 
looking then into the second match up coming up against a USA rugby team. And that was on Sunday. And that was an incredibly close match, 16 to 14. Uh, this was a really interesting game. And I've got a fair bit of detail from this because uh, I spent a lot of time going through watching this match and taking a few points down. But one of the areas that I think the Wallaroos um, really struggled with, particularly within the first half, was the forward dominance. I hadn't watched too much of the USA teams, um, women's matches. Hope Rogers as a prop is an absolute weapon. Mm. Um, supposedly, I did some research on her after the game and supposedly that is not <laughs> anything new to the rugby world, but far out, she has um, the physicality and pace and, and aggression that you don't often see within a women's game. And it was just remarkable to watch and brilliant to see on the field. Yeah. Um, so moving on, thinking about this point, it was a really interesting game and it had finished 16-14 in favour of USA. Uh, the second half comeback by the Wallaroos was brilliant. A couple of um, mall tries that even the game up with brilliant, brilliant kicking from Laurie Kramer, which just proves that some of her earlier losses against, uh, I think it was Japan, where she missed all of her kicks and conversions. Yeah, and there was um, a few misses as well in the New Zealand game. Yeah, it just shows that she is an incredibly talented kicker. Um, occasionally we'll have an off night, but she's mm. the best without a doubt that we have within a team. Um, look, th th there was this one point I want to say, though. Our first try to, um, I think it was uh, Georgina Friedrichs, or Friedrichs. Yep. Uh, that was super lucky. It <laughs> almost definitely came forward off Pomare. I think so, it did. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it did. The I, fact they didn't go back for that was Well, a bit I pretty think there was a little bit of miscommunication between the TMO and the referee in that as well. And the referee was yeah, asked, yeah. asked specifically... Did the ball touch one of the new, uh, the USA players? And when the team reviewed it, she said, no, it didn't. And so the try stood. But the question should have been, has the ball gone forward? Not specifically the question of it got, yep. uh, touching a USA player. Because yep. correctly, it didn't touch her, but it did go forward from the Wallaroos player. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, so, so looking back at this match, the one of the areas that I'm a little bit concerned about moving forward is just the way in which the, the Wallaroos are struggling with forward dominance mm. uh, within the scrums, within the lineouts as well. There's a few issues, but just in tight defending against tight carries, the we're making our tackles very rarely are kind of slipping off tackles in tight, but they've, I'm not seeing many, if any, um, uh, uh, dominant defensive tackles. And so what it's mean is the Walrus are continually having to give up ground in the center of the field, sucks more and more players in, and it allows for either offloading opportunities in tight or once the players are sucked in, more space out wide for the attacking team. And I'm not sure what can really be done about that in a sh as a short-term fix. Some of it is increased physicality and strength from the women. Um, maybe that's an area of tackle technique or fitness, allowing them to get that um, start as soon as the ball's passed to try and get out there and make the dominant hit. <sighs> what are some of your reads on that need for more physicality? Yeah, I think, and coupled with that, uh, the lack of physicality, the breakdown or in the defensive effort, there was in both of these games a clear drop-off in uh, intensity or intent from the Wallaroos players. And in this game particularly, they finished strong um, mm. in that New Zealand game. The They did come out afterwards and said that they were struggling a little bit and starting to blow and fatigue really set in sort of 50-minute mark or 50-60 minute. And that's towards the, the end of the game, the players were really sort of out on their feet. And it's again, it's probably the preparation that they haven't had 
um, to come into a, such a physical tournament yeah. like yep. this against international opposition. Some of these Wallaroos players have only played a handful of tests at this level before. So it's it's difficult when you're going up against a team like USA or, or New Zealand who have professional players who are either playing in New Zealand, in America, or over in the Premiership in England. So um, I think that's where the disparity comes from. The, the lack of preparation and the cohesiveness and the experience of these players. And that experience really matters. I mean, the US team had nine players returning from the English Premiership. So it did result in a significant change up to the match day 23. But what it meant was they had somewhat fresh players who are were a lot more experienced and have been playing a lot of recent rugby, which is obviously incredibly beneficial. And considering that the game was 13-0 at halftime against the Wallaroos, we, we do need to give them great credit for mm. coming back and making it such a tight encounter. Yeah, definitely. Um, as, as much as I'm not um, always a fan of maybe Arabella McKenzie's running game, her kicking since she came on was fantastic. Um, she had an absolutely clutch 50-22, which resulted in a try. Incredible touch finder in a 77th minute, which gave Australia the potential for a win, except we butchered our freaking line out on that one. Um, so she she was and great And she set up that on. first try as well. She straightened up the attack and ran hard at the line and then offloaded off the ground to set that try up as well. So yep. it was a yep. clear indication when she came on that she lifted the pace and the tempo of the game and she got the Wallaroos back in the contest which Definitely. Uh, we probably can't say for a lot of the other players that had such an impact, their performances had such an impact on the game. Yep, so great credit to her. She was brilliant when she came on. Uh, well, look, we do have the next match coming up against Canada on this coming Saturday. So hopefully the team can uh, come out with a win in that game. But I, I will either say way, I am a little bit worried about what's going to happen when we look at the scores from the previous game. So yeah, in the first yeah. game, Canada beat USA 36-5. to And today, New Zealand beat Canada 28-0. So it's a little bit of a mismatch. It's hard to see how it will go, um, considering USA then beat us today. So, or yesterday, this weekend. Significantly be... changed teams, though. So um, yes, it may exactly. well be the US team was um, a little bit uh, weaker because they didn't have their premiership players. So it'd be interesting to see, yeah, what happens mm. in this last round. Mm. And either way, like we said at the beginning of this competition uh, or prior to this, this, it's going to be a great opportunity for the women to get that high-level experience. Um, I wasn't expecting a huge amount from this series. I was expecting to come away with two or three losses. And it seems likely that that is going to happen. And, I mean, obviously, well, we, want, we want the Wallaroos. Yeah, that's three. Come on. You know what I mean. Don't be that guy. <laughs> um, Obviously, we want the team to be winning, but at the same time, considering the last two years the Wallaroos have had, experience is vital and every opportunity they get to be out in the field in a match scenario prior to the World Cup in October yep. is to be incredibly valued. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. One thing I will say, leading into the World Cup later in the year, I thought it was really cool that as the game, this game on the weekend, the USA versus Wallaroos was kicking off, they had the Avengers theme playing in the background. So if that's anything to uh, to go by what the New Zealand World Cup will be later in the year, if they can keep that theme going, I'll be pretty happy. That was really cool. <laughs> how, how cool. All right, mate, should we move on to Super Rugby Pacific? Let's go. It's time to dissect or review the semi-finals for the Super Rugby Pacific that took over, took place over the weekend. Two games of rugby, two very different outcomes. 
Uh, the first game we'll talk about is the Crusaders and Chiefs game, which took place on Saturday, on Friday afternoon, Sydney time. So the result was 20-7 to by the Crusaders. They have booked themselves a place in the grand final next weekend, uh, which will be played against the Blues at Eden Park. Let's start things off by just saying, out of the gates, how good was this defensive effort by the Crusaders? It was just next level. I mean, we saw time and time again the Chiefs attacking the Crusaders defensive line, particularly in the Crusaders 22. And it was just solid tackle after solid tackle, very few errors, very few misses, leading to the Chiefs just really running out of ideas about how to break this Crusaders defence down. Uh, I'm trying to find the actual number here, but I think the tackle count was 273 attempted by the Crusaders for 122 by the Chiefs. So that just goes to show um, the amount of time that the Chiefs had their hands on the ball and how often they were just running at the Crusaders and the Crusaders were were putting in dominant hits and putting them to ground. Crusaders had a 90% tackle completion rate with the Chiefs, 87. So... Pretty, uh, pretty standard from what you'd expect from a New Zealand game, uh, but it just seemed coming away from it, 20-7, to 7, it really felt watching the game that the Chiefs had all of the opportunities, all of the uh, time and effort with the ball, and the Crusaders just made it count in the small amount of times that they had the ball. The Crusaders had 38% possession in this game. There's, there's a great stat by Brendan from Rugby Ecology who says the Chiefs started 15 attacks and in Crusaders 22 and scored zero points. They attempted zero drop goals, zero penalty kicks at goal. Another team sinks because they fear the three-pointer. That was such an interesting point. There were so many opportunities where the Chiefs really could have just had one of their um, kickers back in the pocket and be taking some of the drop goals because the Crusaders were so condensed on the defensive line, stopping drive after drive from the Chiefs. And yet they just didn't take that opportunity. It's something that we sometimes um, uh, sometimes decry from Northern Hemisphere teams and go, boo. But at the same time, when you've got such a good defensive wall that the Crusaders have, how are you going to score points? Take your kicks. Take your kicks and win the game that way. Nobody's going to care once you've won the game. It was a telling point in the post-match interview with Brad Webber, the captain of the Chiefs, who said that this game hurts more for the fact that they, not just the fact that they lost the semi-final, but he felt like they lost the game and the Crusaders didn't win it. Um, I don't know if you take that as a little bit salty that uh, they've just lost the semi-final, but it's interesting to, to, to have that mentality of this wasn't so much the Crusaders were so good they won this game, but it felt like we just didn't do enough to win it. Um, do you think that's an accurate representation of what this game was? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, I mean, look, there's an element to which it's, it's fair in that the Chiefs um, weren't good enough to be able to break down and to provide answers to the questions that the Crusaders defence was asking. But at the same time, they had a number of inaccuracies that the Crusaders just exploited incredibly well. I mean, when when was it that um, that break uh, so basically the Chiefs are hot on attack and this is for Cullen Grace's first try. Basically, the, this is around the 20th minute. They're one man down. I think Matera's just been sent off as a team yellow card by this point. And you have the breakdown field. Will Jordan chases it through. Brad Weber, I'm pretty sure, is the one that's got back to clean the ball up and Will Jordan tackles him, forces him 
him into the goal line and and they get the resulting scrum from there. And off the back of that, you then have Cullen Grace come around the side of the scrum, score a try. All that comes from Chiefs inaccuracy and brilliant execution from the Crusaders. And that's just what you come to expect of top New Zealand teams. And although, although the Crusaders haven't always been on fire this season, um, this that was a moment that someone with a class of Will Jordan is able to make count. It's one of the things, when you look at the actual stats of this game, that I can see where Brad Webb was coming from, that it felt like they should have, could have won this game and that they just weren't good enough. And it goes to show yet again that you need to do something remarkable to beat the Crusaders in a final. Um, when we look at the stats, the Chiefs ran 386 metres to 280 by the Crusaders. They had 219 passes to 102. They made 168 runs to 78 by the Crusaders. They beat 27 tackles. Um, they offloaded seven times to two. Like all of the stats say that the Crusade, uh, the Chiefs were dominant over the Crusaders, but it comes away with a twenty to seven overall score, and it's telling that the Crusaders were scoring points from the very few times that they got into the Chiefs' twenty-two. Every time they got down there, they came away with either seven or three points. Uh, the Chiefs had yep. so much entries into the the Crusaders' twenty-two, and they came away came away once with points and you just can't do that against a team like the Crusaders. You need to be applying scoreboard pressure and just keep the clock ticking over because like we saw earlier in the season, when the Waratahs did that, took the points when they were on offer, made the Crusaders sweat a little bit. They started to go to pieces. Um, Obviously two completely different points in the season, two completely different Crusader sides, but it just goes to show that that is one way that you can beat a New Zealand team. Yeah. And uh, look, when, there are, there are a couple of points that I want to highlight in that, that, like I said just a moment ago, the Crusaders do really, really well at um, at taking the limited opportunities that they had within this game. The first one I've already spoken about with that chase downfield and then Colin Grace's try off the back of the resulting scrum. But I highlighted this on our Pick and Drive Twitter account uh, yesterday when I was um, checking out this game. And within the 34th minute, you have that half break from Richie Malonga, which then sets up the resulting try again to Colin Grace afterwards. Um, and, and the thing that's amazing about this is the ball comes out to Richie Malonga, passing out from the scrum half, and he he attacks the line, steps off his right, comes in towards the ruck a little bit, but he's clearly attacking the line. And you've got Weber and Tarval, who are both there, eyes up, set defensively, connected well, and they're both ready to make the hit. And yet he somehow is able to glide through. And the amazing thing about this moment is not that Richie glides through. It's about what other options are happening around him to enable this to happen. And it shows what the Chiefs didn't do throughout the match, right? So the reason why Mwanga is able to get through is because he's got Will Jordan running the unders line, does enough to get in Brad Weber's vision that Weber kind of steps out a little bit on him. Angus Ta'avau can't get across quick enough to do to get more than kind of like a outstretched hand on him because he's a prop defending against Mawanga. And Mawanga's then get through, awesome offload, resulting plays, blah, 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 try. Okay. But the the point there, bodies in motion, players offering options for the runner at the line and causing the defense to be stressed and make decisions. And in this case, the defense makes the wrong decision 
Antar Aval is able to, um, not able to catch up. Mawanga slices through. What do the Chiefs do? They send up player after player into a set defense, rarely offering, um, rarely offering alternate runners, alternate options. And when they eventually do, Tata Val later goes over for a try off the back of some excellent dummy play and excellent um, runners that are providing other options out to either side of him. Like it, it's not hard in concept, mm. but the Crusaders make it hard and the Chiefs weren't able to execute this under pressure. It's going to be really interesting to see next week the Mwanga versus Barrett uh, show-off for who really does get that starting All Blacks jersey um, when it comes to the internationals later in the year. There's one more point I want to mention around this game before we move on. Um, the next game does feature an Australian team, so I'm sure we'll probably dive into that in a little bit more detail than we are sort of glossing over with this game. But that comes down to the technicality of the Matera red card. Now, I've got no issues with the two yellow cards that were issued. Um, I have no issue with him getting a red card. Uh, the question I had when watching the game was, currently, if a player gets a red card, they are replaced after 20 minutes. It's a 20-minute red, player goes off, can, another player can come on, that player can't be replaced. We all know that. I had questions around whether a player who receives two yellow cards should be able to be substituted. In my opinion, doing two things um, that warrant a yellow card level Granted, in this situation, Matera does cop the first yellow card as a, a team penalty that was repeated infringements, and he was the one that did the last one, so got the yellow. But the second yellow card that he got was pretty cut and dry. Could have been a red, really. Um, yeah. So I was wondering, in that situation, if a player has given away two yellow cards, it's pretty clear that they're not playing the game in a... in the uh in the spirit, spirit of the yeah, game they're yep. not playing the spirit of the game that we come to expect so they've done something that's worthy of getting two yellow cards get a red card i think that you shouldn't be able to be replaced in that situation what are your thoughts there Andrew? yeah yeah i think that's probably fair enough um that the red card is meant to not ruin a game within a moment in say the third or fourth minute of the game have a player accidentally get too upright and tackle and then have the that team down for 75, six, seven minutes of the rest of the match. Within this situation, the yellow cards were relatively far apart. They were fairly well-deserved. Um, and realistically, I think that the red card should be the full full ban in this particular situation. I really have no issue with that. I don't think they were actually. That's the other point. I don't think they were that far apart when you go back and look at it. So They're both first first half though, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, so he gets his first yeah. yellow card in the 20th and minute. And then 36. He comes minute, back in on the 30th minute and 30th. then in the 32nd minute he gets the second yellow card. So in the space of two <laughs> minutes he gets another yellow card. So like you yep. can't say that it was the 30th minute and the 65th. Good um, point. Good point. So again, um, that probably leads into that discussion of should he yeah. be allowed to be replaced then? Because he's clearly done two things wrong within the space of two minutes. But um, anyway, it'll be interesting to see what uh, Sands are, I guess, if they are still the, yep, the owners yep. of Super Rugby Pacific now, um, what they do next year, because it has been confirmed that the 20-minute red card uh, technicality or trial that was taking place this season hasn't been picked up by World Rugby. It won't be used in the World Cup next year. So mm. there's not really any benefit into keeping it, really, if it's not going yeah, to be uh, played on the international scene. So interesting to, in that instance to see what uh, Sanzar does there. 
Um, One yeah. final thing before we move on. Yep. Um, I might just quickly say that Matera was pretty Isn't lucky to not get a straight red. Yeah, it was. Um, but when you look back to, yeah. it was Shiloh, Shiloh Klein, yep. Shiloh Klein, who was the second man in shoulder to the head of the um, attacking player. It's basically pin perfect the same thing as what Matera did within this situation and Matera receives a yellow. So I think that, I, th I think, Klein had a bit more of a cocked shoulder within within his tackle. But I think Matera was pretty lucky to get away with just a yellow for mm. his his second yellow card. Yeah. And it wouldn't surprise me if he does actually receive a ban. What won't he be receiving a ban for multiple yellow cards anyway? You don't um, get a ban. Much for like Reese Hodge did. Uh oh, true, true. Yeah. Uh not too sure what happens there. Reese Hodge got three weeks from memory. Um yeah, he so did. it'll be interesting to see what happens there, whether he does get a ban. But knowing the fact that he does play for the Crusaders and it is an all-New Zealand final next week, he'll probably just be overturned. Yeah, it'll probably be like Weber who gets the ban or something like that for being hit in the head by a Crusaders player. Yeah, they'll give it to yeah. the Chiefs player who's not even playing. Yep. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right, uh, mate, let's so go on to the next one. That's so salty. <laughs> we do that. Anyway, so the second game of the, uh, of the week was played on Saturday evening. Uh, Blues versus Brumbies. This was a real thriller. This went right down to yep. the wire. And I, I think a lot of people were surprised by this. Uh, final score was 20 to 19. Absolute cracking game. A lot of controversy. lot to unpack. Where do we start? I think we'll start with the first half, Ando. The Brumbies first half, not great really. 20, uh, 20 to 3, I think it was at halftime. Yeah, it was really, really poor. I mean... In, in a lot of ways, the um, Blues took the opportunities in the moments that they had, but the the Brumbies got out to such a good lead with Ire Simone's fantastic third-minute try. Uh, that was just shocking defence from Stephen Perifetta combined with great physicality and pace from Ire Simone. He's just had a body blinder of a season. I think we need to start signing players overseas but not tell them that it's not actually a real contract so that they start to play really well in their final season in Australian rugby and then go, psych, <laughs> you're still in Australia. Um, yeah, we just make just up these clubs form. overseas that want yep. to sign them and then they're like, no, nah, yep. it's not real. <laughs> you're yep. staying. And now you're a Wallaby. Well done for playing well. Um, but he, Ira Simone had a fantastic game. But getting back to the point, which was the Blues, um, the Blues just really were a lot more clinical and a lot more physical within the first half. The Brumbies couldn't handle it. And they made a bunch of really poor um, decisions in attack and within their kicking game that resulted in opportunities for the Blues. Um, and, and the Blues were good enough within that first half to take it. And so they came out to a deserved 20-7 uh, to 7 lead. 20-7. to 7. Uh, yeah, yeah, I said 20-3 earlier. Yeah, that's right. Yep. I forgot about that first uh, try there. So we'll, we'll go through some of the match stats that might paint a bit of a picture of this game. The Blues had 443 metres run to the Brumbies, 250 Blues 47% possession to the Brumbies, 53%. Brumbies only had 47% territory to the Blues, 53%. Uh, and it comes down to that final few minutes of play. Are we ready to get to that? Do we want to discuss that now? Or do <laughs> Let's just get it out of the way, mate. Let's get it out of the way. Um, look, I don't think there's any other way in saying it, but uh, it was a penalty. It, it very clearly was a penalty. And... It's to really difficult. Yeah, to Luke Reimer. And I don't understand how um, Brian O'Keefe, well, Ben O'Keefe, sorry, Ben O'Keefe can be watching that 
right there and not call it. Um, it. It's really hard as an Australian rugby fan when a very clear and obvious match deciding penalty in front of the ref's eyes goes uncalled. Yeah, you can point to other moments within the game that penalties weren't called and yeah, okay, fair enough. But this is one that would have changed the outcome of the match. And I think the biggest frustration for a lot of rugby fans is the inaction of O'Keefe. It wasn't like he was saying one thing. Um, in the last time that these teams played each other, which was in Canberra a few weeks ago, Ollie Sapsford was over the top of the ball. And again, we thought that was a penalty offence and should have been rewarded when it wasn't. But in that instance, the referee was saying, hands off, I think 23. He said, hands off 23. So he had deemed that Sapsford wasn't the successful jackler in that situation and was calling for him to release the ball, which he did. The Blues got it out to Bowden Barrett, who took the drop goal and won the game. In this situation... Rhymer's over the ball, hands all over it. I think it was uh, the second rower. What's his name? It's just escaped me. The blue second row was on the ground. Romano. The ball. Romano, that's it. I think it was him who was on the ground. Um, Sapsford's over, uh, Rhymer's over the top, hands on it. No one else is contesting it. Pulling, 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 pulling. And not Ben O'Keefe didn't say anything. He didn't say release the ball. He didn't say blue release. He didn't say white release. He wasn't giving any of those players direction as to who needs to to win this outcome. And that was the frustration that he kind of just didn't do anything. And yep. we got that result. Yeah. Look, there's, and I think that's probably enough on that point, hey, because it, very clearly, you know what, I'll say it from an Australian perspective, very clearly that is a penalty. Um, I've seen some Kiwi fans on Twitter saying that Reimer wasn't supporting his body weight. I'm like, nobody Jackler is ever fully supporting their body weight. He's basically doing it as perfectly as he can. Um, but my point within this is the Brumbies need to be good enough that they're not having these final moments be the thing that decides the game for them. And they simply weren't good enough in the first half. And there's two quick points that I want to kind of highlight on this. Yep. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll do one. Um, the Within the first half, the blue the Brumbies are hot on the attack on the Blues try line. They're going um, forward pod after forward pod, pick trying to smash away. Pick and, drive. Yep. pick and drive after pick and drive. And it's at the 15-minute mark, and the Brumbies eventually get held up over the line. Now, that was just really poor because what essentially happened was the Brumbies had way too many of their forwards on the ground and they kept trying to go on top of or over or into the traffic where players already were down on the ground or either were pinned or were still in the process of getting back up off the ground. And it was just poor decision-making from a team that's usually a lot more clinical in those areas. They keep, we usually try and keep pod runners coming around the side, moving it off, trying to get closer towards the post and then either do maybe a backline play in either direction or basically just stretch the defence enough that an error is made and they're able to exploit that. That was just, it was just really, really poor. And also, it's not directly because of it, but in that moment, um, Tom Hooper got mm. his shoulder absolutely munted. That was and, a weird um, situation, wasn't it? So yeah. he goes to ground, his shoulder's dislocated. It's from sitting at home, it was pretty obvious that it was out of place. Like it was out of its socket, dislocated. And he plays on, he gets up, he gets back into position. Uh, it was held up, so it's a dropout. And they kicked it straight to him and he's played on and he's dropped it. Fair enough. He's got a dislocated shoulder there. Did everything he possibly could to catch it. But why was play allowed to play on? Should he not have gone down and screamed to the ref, my shoulder's out? And um, yep. even, even if he's off to the side getting medical attention and they play on, someone else catches that ball and they don't drop it. 
So Correct. a little bit of gamemanship there that the Brumbies probably didn't have the experience to, to think about. Um, one of the things that I wanted to say about this game was those those injuries. And I think um, I think Nick White got fairly concussed quite early in this game. And when he goes I back Banks. and smacks into Banks, yeah. and it's a yep. little bit of a confusing situation what happened there because he ends up grounding the ball in goal after coming off Banks and gets a bit of a screamer. He gets up quite dazed and the referee doesn't, rule a five-meter scrum for taking the ball back and grounding it, goes back for a penalty advantage, which was a bit confusing there. I don't really recall whether Nick White called the mark or not, but a little technicality. But he got up from there, and he was quite dazed, and he wasn't mm. didn't get assessed for a HI, didn't come off. And I do wonder if when we got back up the other side, end of the field, like you were saying, Hando, that he was directing play, probably not with the clearest of heads and making the yep. right decisions at times because he was a little bit concussed. He also came off really early as well. He only played about eight, ten minutes of the second half before Wanigan came on. So did Valentini. Didn't come back from the half, and that was really interesting yeah. as well. Um, yeah. I sent a tweet out about it, and some people said, "Well, he wasn't expected to play eighty minutes, but was he expected to play forty? Like that seemed like a quite a, an interesting decision when this is realistically their last game of the year." Yeah, I mean, look, when you got Dan McKellar, who's also the assistant Wallabies coach, he's probably. Um, yeah, but like some he, calls. surely he would have made 50 minutes. Maybe, maybe. Anyway, anyway, um, um, anyway, anyway. my last point on this game is the drop goal by Noel Alessio, which happened prior to that little debacle with Reimer and the, the known call by Ben O'Keefe. Was that the right decision at that time to go for the drop goal? Offer to no. Farsi runs no. through and, and uh, gets the uh, charge down, which ends up causing that whole fracas at the end there. Um, does that come down to inexperience from Noah, a little bit of panic? Let's see what we can do here. Let's try and do pull something out of the bag like Stephen Larkin might have a few years ago. Yeah, look, it's another one of those situations where you've got maybe some um, less experienced players who are still developing in key situations. So you had Alan Alatoa off the field by that point. Um, James Nick Slipper White. was off the field too. Nick White was gone. Um, and so who's it down to? Basically... Ryan Wanigan, who's still like he's captain a team before, but he's still young and new within the he's whole like scheme of things. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Noah, and Noah's also very young and inexperienced within finals football. Yeah. And so you don't have that wealth of experience of saying, no, 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 hold, hold. Like six more phases. Come on, six more phases. Truck it up. Let's get it up there. Get in a better position. Get some screening players in the way. You, you know, like a few yeah. locks just happened to be standing in, in the running paths. Did you um, notice you um, to block it. that that incident where Bowden Barrett goes over to score the try and knocks it on and he stands up and um, tells Ben O'Keefe that he had knocked it on so they didn't end up going to the TMO? Uh, did you yeah. notice that he was screaming at them about the box kick in the lead up that the two or three second rowers were offside? Did you see him screaming no, at Ben O'Keefe about no, that? I didn't mention it. Yeah, it's, it. it's funny. We haven't quite seen that Uh it's a little bit of a technicality there by the Brumbies, whether they are or they aren't offside with those box kick blockers there. Uh, it's a ploy they've used all year and they've gotten away with it. But it's yep. quite funny to see uh, yeah. Bowden Barrett sort of whinging about it. Yeah, look, um, I think I think as a kind of summary of this game, yeah, Brumbies fans can be rightly aggrieved that, that penalty to Rhymer wasn't given yep. without a shadow of a doubt in my mind. However... 
the Brumbies needed to be better and they were too inaccurate within the first half at times it counted to provide opportunities for themselves to take the referee out of the equation and to win the game on its own merits rather than waiting for a couple of tight calls at the end of the match. Um, you, you never want to be uh, relying upon those moments. And there's a great uh, tweet here from Laurie Fisher, which I'll just read out that is a really, really good um, kind of summary of the match. Outclassed and outmuscled in the first half, but brilliantly tenacious and combative in the second. Mm. Brumbies rugby, a team you can be well proud of. And I think that we can really take that away from this match. Yeah, I've uh, to wrap up this game in the Brumbies season, I think we've got to praise them for the fact that it was 20-7 to 7 at halftime and they kept the blue scores in that second half and scored 14 points themselves. So... That's a massive effort to do at Eden Park. Dan McKellar did say in the post-match interview uh, or the presser that, you know, Aussie teams haven't won at Eden Park for 10, 15 years, whatever the, the scoreline, the time frame is, and you really need luck on your side to kind of pull it off. It's hard when it comes down to those situations. Yes, the Brumbies did so well to keep the Blue scoreless in the second half too, yet so, so close. I was sitting at home just wishing wishing for once that the narrative would be different, that that penalty would be called, that the Australian team would be able to get um, the wood over the New Zealand team, that all of a sudden that one call does go our way, the arm does go towards the Australian team and they are able to get that penalty and that kick and they win it and get into the grand final. Um, it's just a narrative that's happened so many times over the last sort of five or ten years where the call does go the New Zealanders' way and we're not quite good enough to, to get there. So a little bit disappointed um, that the result didn't go the Brumbies' way, but overall they've had a really, really good season and there's a lot there. It's going to be really interesting to see how they can change this team and with the players coming in and the players going out, how they're going to really shape and gel and look forward to 2023. Yep, completely agreed, mate. Well, let's move into our preview for the grand final. So the grand final is played this coming Saturday I believe it's 5.05 p.m. kickoff, or it might even be earlier at 4.30. Not too sure just yet around I think that. it's 5.05, I think. Okay, 5.05, perfect. Uh, Blues versus Crusaders at Eden Park. This game really could go either way. We haven't yet got the teams yet because it is Monday of game week, but sitting here seeing both performances this weekend, how do you see it going? Oh, look, I have absolutely no idea. Um, I'll be completely honest. In, You're doing a Michael uh, Checker? Not What's a pick. Michael Checker? He doesn't make a pick. He won't put a prediction out. <laughs> Boring. No, I'll definitely predict. Um, my my hope is that the Blues get up. My hope is that the Blues get up. I think that they deserve it for the season that they've had, uh, being far more consistent than the Crusaders have been. And I also think that the Crusaders have suffered at times from some of the rotations that they've done, particularly within the centre pairings. So it's... The, it's incredibly difficult to pick a winner within this game. Yeah. Um, I just think that with the attacking class that the Blues do have within the back line with Bowden Barrett as well in there and Finlay Christie doing some nice sniping around the edges, that they do have the potential to unlock that Crusaders defence. But at the same time, Saders are just insanely dangerous as well. So, look, it, it definitely could go either way, but I'm going to go Blues by five. Blues by five. I'll go uh, Blues by one. I just think Ooh. hometown advantage, Eden Park, such a fortress to to win at. I think the Crusaders will really struggle there this week and for once might feel like an Australian team coming to Eden Park to 
feel the optimism being in the away change room and <laughs> the, the crowd cheering against you and all those kinds of things. So, um, as you said, Ando, very hard to bet against the Crusaders team in the final, but this Blues team, they've got they've got a really good game plan. They've got some really good players that can just break uh, break game opposition down and, and score points when uh, they make simple mistakes. So it will be really interesting to see how it goes. Uh, I would... I've just forgotten what I was going to say. Um, the odds are essentially even between both teams. Yeah, the um, odds the, really the are. Bookies, the bookies uh, have basically no idea how this game is going to go. It will really come down to one or two points, I think. There won't be more than a score in it by either team. And I, from memory, I think the Blues actually beat the Crusaders earlier in the year. So... I think they'll have a lot of, um, a lot. Well, of, yeah, they did because the Blues haven't lost a match this season. Yeah, they'll have a lot of pride from that win uh, that they will be relying on in this grand final. But it'll be a big final. I'll say Completely Blues by. Agreed. What did I say? Blues by three. Blues by one. one. Blues by one. Blues by one. Already awesome. forgotten, mate. Already forgotten. I would have laughed so hard if you went Crusaders by three. What did or I something. say? Crusaders by fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Well, that's it for Super Rugby Pacific for this week. Why don't we jump into the Wallaby squad announcement? Let's go. It's a time of the year that every Australian rugby fan loves, and that is when the first Wallaby squad of the year gets announced. And Dave Rennie has dropped his squad and it's it's somewhat controversial especially if you are from the western state of western australia and let me read the club breakdown before i throw this over to you mitch so we've got 15 brumbies seven reds six waratahs four rebels and three overseas players you know it's bad when the overseas players outnumber your own state contingent uh mitch how would you be feeling if you're a force fan right now the who uh, a force fan the Force fam. The, the, the Force? Oh, The Force, right. Are we including them in Australian rugby now? Oh, Jeez. it seems like we are. And, oh, mate, I mean, that's, all that's a poor it's... joke. That's, you, you've just <laughs> lost us, our, our five Force fans. Uh, I think Simon will forgive us. Um, uh, realistically, it does hurt, doesn't it, when there's more international players selected than the Western Force. And I think we've got to, to say it first because it's probably a point that we could mention a lot when we go through this squad. There are some massive names that have been left out of this initial uh, England series, but that is because of the inclusion of the Australia A program. So there are some players who I think will be featuring quite heavily and getting a lot of game time in that Australia A program. Fleeti Kaituhu, for example, I think will play a lot of uh, games for the Australia A and probably would realistically not be getting selected in the Wallabies 23 um, for the England series. So yeah, correct. I think that's why we haven't seen one or two inclusions from the Western Force, but geez, it doesn't look good, does it? No, and I mean, we do need to pretty quickly say before we move on, um, Isaac Rodder would have been in the Wolby squad if he didn't get an ankle injury, which turns out to be quite serious. So he'll be out for a couple of months with yeah. that. Um, so he, he definitely would have been in the squad. But outside of that, um, unfortunately, some of the force players have just struggled with form throughout mm. the second half of the season. Like Fuiti Kaitu'u is somebody you already mentioned who was um, in the Wallaby squad last year and his early season form was fantastic, but he dropped off in the second half of the season and didn't really even keep the on-field captaincy, let alone um, hold his starting position. So, yeah, what the, the most, I guess, hardest thing is for the Wallabies not naming a Western force player is that the first test of 2022 is being played in Perth. 
Yeah, rough. <laughs> very, very rough. Um, and so, look, I just, it's hard. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a Eastern State Waratahs fan. I just encourage all of our Force players, Force fans, sorry, to just continue to support the Wallabies. Yeah. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a deliberate slight on the Force or anything like that. It's just a reflection of the transitional nature of where their team is, yeah. and how they've relied upon a lot of older, um, older players, some and of in, whom are internationals. In yeah, international, so they're ineligible. And I think over the coming year or two, they will have a good crop of players coming through who will be pushing for Wallaby selection. Yeah. And if somebody says to me, Fergus Lee Warner should have been in this squad, I think that's ridiculous. Fergus Lee Warner probably should have been in the squad last year. Yeah. But he shouldn't be in the squad right now, considering he's about to go overseas that's and be right. ineligible. Yeah. Whereas somebody like Tom Banks, he's the he's the incumbent fullback. So it's it's not the same situation. Yeah. Well, um, let's uh, anyway. let's get into the squad and what how we'll do this. So we've got a great graphic that has been put together by Rev at Rugby Fixation. Um, yes. Will we will we tweet this? Will we retweet this, Ando? I think yeah, we we'll will. retweet it. I'll do it right now. Yeah. So that um, if you are listening to the pod, you can go and see that great piece of work by Rev. Well done. Um, and it breaks down the Wallaby squad into the key positions. And so what we'll do is we'll go through each position um, chunk eight at a time. We'll read the players that got named and then we'll have a quick chat about who was overlooked or what, who we thought might have been an inclusion. Um, we'll start with hookers. So the hookers that were selected are Flau Fainga'a, Lockie Lonigan, and Dave Parecki. Who is the first person that jumps to mind and oh, that was probably overlooked from this hook, the hooker inclusions? I think it's Felicia Kaitu. Like I said, he was one of the early season favourites to be within the Wallaby squad and deservedly so. Um, he'd, he'd been quite dynamic in terms of his attacking physicality, defensive strength. Um, he, lineouts were still a bit of an issue for him, but he, he was looking really good. Uh, in my mind, I'd probably still have him there over Lockie Lonigan. Um, I think Lonigan's frame is just a little bit too small for the requirements of um, international rugby. But that being said, I can see why they're keeping Lonigan in there because of the cohesion with the 14 other Brumbies that he'll be playing alongside. So, yeah, look, it makes sense. Yeah, and um, when we look at who do we think is going to be the starting hooker come the first test? Probably Parecki yeah. or, yeah, okay. It's either going to be Parecki or Fangar. Yeah. Um, Lonigan won't be in the match day 23 unless there's an injury, by my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd probably, off-season form, be going off Parecki, off cohesion with teammates around him, Fangar. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Um, I also think that a player like Lockie Lonigan probably gets a little bit more out of being involved in the full Wallaby squad, whereas a player like Fleety Kite, too, where he is, uh, the development that he still needs to go through and the, the growth... Uh, probably gets more out of being the starting hooker for Australia A. Um, Lockie Lonigan has a lot longer in the Wallaby squad in the future, I think, to learn that and gel there. Um, do you take us through the loose head props, Sando? Right as I start a coughing fit. Yep, let's do it. Um, loose head prop, James Slipper, Scotty Seo, and Angus Bell. So, I mean, who's who's the p- rough person to miss out here, Mitch? Uh, I've got to say Alan... Uh, I'm not Alan Alto. I'm reading his name in the tight head prop, but uh, probably Harry Johnson Holmes or Tom Robinson. Yeah, probably Robinson. I mean, Robinson. Um, I mean, I think uh, Johnson Holmes is tight head. Yeah, he's tight head. Yeah, I mean, Tom Robinson would probably be it, but even then, his form hasn't been that stellar over at the Force either. Um, so, and he spent a big chunk of the season injured with a calf injury, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yep, so, so moving into the uh, tight head props, and we've got yeah, Alan Alatoa, yeah. Taniela Tupo, and Pone Fal Amasili. 
Uh, Pone still hasn't got a single test yet, which this is his second year of yeah second year of inclusion within the Wallaby squad, and he still hasn't made it onto the field. Will be interesting to see if he does get that test this year. Um, we did mention Harry Johnson Holmes didn't get included in this tight head selection, and I think that he is going to play big minutes. Um, for Australia A this year. And interestingly enough, uh, Dave Rennie did mention in an interview uh, to the media uh, post the announcement of this 35-man squad that uh, Harry Johnson-Holmes is training with the Wallaby squad at the moment because there is still doubt whether Taniela Tupo will be ready come Test 1. And if so, I actually think that you should have probably Harry Johnson-Holmes in the game. Oh, I don't know. I think Pone is probably a better impact player, so Alan would be able to play something like 50, 60, 55, 60 minutes. And then if you want an impact for the last 20, then Pone could be pretty effective for that. Um, Harry Johnson-Holmes is more of a more of a work rate player, I the think, interesting than, thing than Pone. that I noticed the other day, I did see a schedule for the Australia A program. I can't remember off the top of my head what that tournament's called. It's not Pacific Nations. Pacific Nations. That's the Wallaroos, what they're playing in. So I think it's called something else. But... um. Anyway, they're playing the exact same days as the Wallabies, so they're playing on the Saturday, the second, definitely Pacific ninth and sixteenth. Is it Pacific Nations yep. Cup? Okay, all yep. right. So I'm pretty sure that's the same name then as the Wallaroos <laughs> current competition, but all good. Um, yeah, so they're playing the exact same day, which makes it difficult for that crossover of talent. Yeah, correct. Um, so that'll be an interesting one to see how. I mean, they'll get a better read of who's available and. Um, not obviously closer to the games. My hope is to see Daniel Tupo run out or at least come off the bench, but I also don't want them to rush him back. Um, yeah. He's far too an important player for him to have a niggling, ongoing or long-term injury. I'd rather him be rested if need be for the first game and then play um, big minutes in the second and third. All right, but why don't we move into the locks? A little bit. So let's go through the locks. Why don't you go through the locks and the loose forwards together and we'll, um, we'll say if there's any omissions there. Okay, Locks, Matt Phillip, Darcy Swain, Jed Holloway, Caden Neville, and Nick Frost. So three Brumbies, a Rebel and a Tar. So sucks to be a red or um, force lock there. <laughs> and in the loose forwards, Michael Hooper, Pete Samu, Rob Valentini, Harry Wilson, and Rob Leota. Now, Fraser McWright's a big admission there within the loose forwards, but it's very clearly been said that as a specialist seven, he's very rarely going to be on the bench for the Wallabies because he needs someone that can cover a multitude of positions in a back row. Yep like Pete Samu can, six, seven, and eight. And the expectation is that he is going to have a very big um, role within the Pacific Nations Cup. Yeah, that's right. Uh, There's one name that hasn't been included in that lock or loose forward combination, Ando. Who is it? Uh, You mean Ned Hannigan? And it's because he'll be captaining the Pacific Nations Cup team. And like you mentioned within a chat the other week, when if we do end up losing the first game, then Hannigan will be flown in to basically take over the captaincy from Michael Hooper and will lead us to glory against England. It's going to happen. But it's not just England. Will then lead us into glory against South Africa, get winners to Bledisloe into yep. 2023 next yep. year and, and the yep. World Cup. So the yep. sky's the limit for Ned Hannigan. Without a shadow of a doubt. Moving on to scrum half. Nick White, Tate McDermott, Jake Gordon. Any any questions there? That's all pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, the the other players really do drop off and I would not be expected really to see either, any of them at this current no. time included in a Wallaby squad. So no surprises there. Nick White starts. Who's on a bench? Tate? Tate McDermott, Jake? yeah. Yeah, cool. Yep. Uh, fly half, Quake Cooper, James O'Connor, Noah Lolisiu. I'm, again, not surprised by any of those. You? 
No, not surprised. It'll be interesting to see which way they go uh, for that first test, and it'll be interesting to see the the halves combination. So if if Quade Cooper's starting, I wouldn't be surprised to see Nick White there. But if we go with James O'Connor, then maybe Tate McDermott. Yep. So yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, center: Sami Karevi, Hunter Basami, Lenny Kitao, and Izzy Parisi. Uh, to me, that's all pretty solid. Again. Yeah, interesting to see whether Lenny Kitao does have any games that he can't be eligible for due to that red card. Um, Dave Rennie's quite um, confident that he'll be available. There were some club games that he was looking to play in. Well, from what uh, I heard, the, the finish is like this week. So there's actually not a lot of games between. Um, so unless he was going to play sure for like Warringah or Randwick or someone in the shoot I'm shield. I'm sure there's a subbies game he can play for, yep. He could come play for us. Yeah, he was going to play <laughs> for the pick and drive touch footy game on Friday. Yep. Yep. Friday afternoon at my school. Yeah, yep. definitely. Let's do that. Um, and then outside backs, Marika Korombete, Tom Banks, Jordi Pattaya, Andrew Kellaway, Tom Wright, Suliasu Vunavalu. I think the big talking points here are the inclusion of Suliasu Vunavalu, who has come back from pretty long-term injury and doesn't have a huge amount of game time or form, as well as the omission of Reese Hodge. Now, Hodge hasn't been in good form this season, but He's basically the incumbent utility back and he's the the Mr. Fix-It within the squad. There are some pretty big calls here. Well, I think, and first of all, we should just highlight that the three international players have been confirmed as Samu Karevi, uh, Marika Korobedi and Quade Cooper. So that's not news, but it has been officially confirmed now. I think Andrew Kellaway in a lot of ways has usurped... Uh, Reese Hodge as that utility back for the, the mm. Wallabies now. He's shown that he can play centre, fullback and wing and probably doesn't have the kicking game that Reese Hodge had, but every other facet of the game, I think Andrew Kellaway is probably a little bit uh, ahead of Reese Hodge at the moment. So interesting that Andrew Kellaway has kicked out his Rebels teammate for that inclusion there. Um, yep. And will be really interesting to see come first test, I'm expecting that back three to be Probably Marika Korobetti, definitely. Maybe Andrew Kellaway on the other wing with Tom Banks at fullback. But where do we put Suliasi Vinovalu? Um, mm. Do we put him on the bench? Do we bring him off? Does he get any game time in this England series? Or does he uh, come into the, the fold in the rugby champs later in the year? Who knows? Or do you start Sully, have Kellaway on the bench as maybe part of a 6-2 split because Kellaway is so versatile mm. um, that that could be a bit of a better swap potentially or like Jordi Bataille as well you, you can't really put him on the bench because you can't bank on him getting through 15 minutes <laughs> well I mean if that's the case you just don't play the guy um, but Jordi actually is a decent um, utility bench option too yeah. because he can play center wing or he's cool. had a little bit of time at fullback now so look and we should also say that Suliasi Vunavalu has today been confirmed well not officially confirmed, but the reports are that he's signed a one-year contract extension to stay in Australian rugby with the Queensland mm. Reds and the Wallabies yep. through to the World Cup next year, which is good. Yeah, there was um, in in that interview that you're referring to from Dave Rennie, he was asked about Sully remaining in rugby um, for the World Cup, and and Dave Rennie's response was an immediate and confident "Yep, yep, he'll be staying." Um, so it was very, very confident, very assured. Uh, I'm not too sure how happy I am. Look, I'm, I'm just a bit, I'm not sold on Sully because of the amount of money he's cost for yeah. the huge number of injuries that he's had. But look, let's hope that he absolutely fires and is um, God's gift. Well, to I don't years. I don't think the contract extension would have been too uh, lucrative for him. And I don't think he's driving home in a... 
uh, Land Rover like Michael Hooper is. Let's just say that. <laughs> Probably not. What it might actually do is if he has a good season, increase his value for an opportunity to go overseas um, at the end of his contract if he does want to like head Curtis over Rainer, to like yeah. France. Yeah, something like that. Um, anyway, mate, so look, this is this is an incredibly exciting squad. I think most of it had picked itself before before the um, teams yeah. had actually been announced. We would have been pretty accurate in getting the majority of these players picked. Mm -hmm. uh, not knowing about um, Isaac Rodder's injury probably would have changed up the locking stocks a little bit. I wouldn't have had Caden Neville in there. But with Rodder's injury, who would, with Caden Neville, who would you have included if you didn't want him in the team? Uh, probably Ned Hannigan, personally. Yeah, okay. Just because of his not, utility there. And then not as a meme or something? You actually would have had him No, there? I probably would have had him there. Um, outside of Caden Neville, gee, yeah, I don't... Yeah, he's the first one that comes to mind because of his versatility with that lock-loose uh, mm. forward combination. Yep. Yeah, fair enough. Because um, I don't expect Caden Neville to get many minutes. Um, so maybe having someone like Ned Hannigan in there could be good. But they play entirely different roles. So obviously oh, Neville Dan has been picked for a role. Um, maybe it's that line-out leader, mm. um, that kind of tough-as-nails guy in the middle of the middle of the mall, middle of the pack, middle of the park. So he's trying to hold up tackles And his everywhere. combination with Darcy Swain in that mall defense is just, it, you can't yeah. you, you yeah. can't overlook that. Those yep. guys just absolutely eat malls for breakfast. Yep. Which would be handy so, against South Africa. And also, obviously, England, because that's this team is for the England competition. Yeah. So um, let's see how that goes. Oh, a little bit of news, actually. Um, Carl Sinclair has just been announced as injured and is not going to be coming to Australia as a part of this tour. Um, he's been ruled out with a back injury and he hasn't played since April. He was considering... <laughs> he was a potential to be included even without the game time because he's such a quality player. But yeah, he will definitely not be making a trip down. So we've got no Sinclair. We've got no Tuolungi. Uh, who else are we not included? Are, they, are the calls coming from England yet that this is a C-grade side that's been sent down a la France last year? <laughs> oh, who knows? It's we'll just beat be anyone. Send anyone team. and we'll beat them. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, bring it. Come on. <laughs> um, it's it's going to be a tough, tough series, and I'm very much looking forward be to fun. being kicked anyway, off. Anyway, uh, we've spoken enough about the Wallabies, I think. We do have some fan questions to get through, so let's just dive into the locker room and finish the pod. All right, let's go. All right, moving now into the locker room and we are going to kick things off with Joe Elliott who asks, with Wells, Michael Wells, moving to the force, who captains the Rebels? Hodge, maybe? Mitch? Uh, it will be interesting to see who does get the nod at the moment. It's hard to really say. I feel like the force... Are gonna, or yeah, sorry. I feel like the Rebels have a big off-season and are going to sign some players. So um, we'll be interesting to see who they can get from overseas and maybe from some other Australian teams as well. So it's probably a little bit too hard to say just yet who will be the captain. But of the players that are currently available, I'd probably say probably Matt Phillip I'd be going with. Mm. Yeah, very good call. Very good call. All right, next question coming in again from Joe Elliott. Should we look at a captain's challenge again? I mean, that was only in a New Zealand competition. It didn't come in over into the Super AU or Trans-Tasman. Uh, personally, I'm not a fan. I don't want it. How about you? Uh, it's like it stops us having these whinges about the the referee no calls at the end of the game, uh, like we've been doing on the pod this week. So in some ways, I don't hate the idea, but I just think the practicalities of it and in the game, it, it just slows things down even more when you've got yep. players complaining about things and actually checking stuff. So 
I just I don't know if a, a captain's or a, a coach's challenge is the right way to go about it, or if we need to somehow change the way the TMO gets involved and just get the TMO to look over things and and come in and say, uh, you know, the ref or whoever it is, say it's Ben O'Keefe, Ben, yep. we've got a penalty here that you've missed. Let's just bring this up on the screen and have a look at it. And if the ref then says that he doesn't agree with it still, well, that's it. We've had another shot yep. at it. So, Next question coming in from Shane Wright. We've just spoken about the coach's challenge. I'm assuming he means captain's challenge on that one. And if not, I apologize. Uh, automatic time clock stoppage, respecting games slash time wasting and then referee performance appointment system. O'Keefe, maybe not a semi-final main referee. Look, uh, I'll, I'll send, I'll comment on the first, on the second point, and then you can comment on the third. Sure. So for me, I think that we should have a time clock stoppage for scrums and when players are um, down, they often do it for when players are down, but I think there just needs to be a little bit more um, opportunity to get rid of that annoying time wasting that can happen within games when players, when when teams are trying to wind down the clock for a yellow card, end of a half, end of a match, something like I that. Think I think that's a no-brainer. The way the way the game is currently at in terms of professionalism and um, technology-wise, it's no longer. I, personally, I think it shouldn't be the responsibility of the referee to dictate the time. The yeah, referee has so much other things to do at the moment. It's the referee says time off, time on. Uh, and he's the final say. He keeps his own time and it's his say when the game's over or not. Um, he can refer to the TMO for timing if he's confused or isn't sure, but ultimately he looks after it. I think in today's day and age, we need a th- another representative. If it's another referee on the sideline whose sole job is to watch the, the, the clock. And when a scrum's called and... Here's the mark, clock goes off. When the ball's in or ball's even out at the end of it, clock goes back on and he does that and it's his sole job um, yep. because we've just got too much wastage at the moment. Yep, agreed. Uh, and then referee appointment system. I'm pretty sure they do have an internal yeah. review process that influences this. It's just not publicized. And and the hardest part of this is, yes, it's not publicized and nor should it be publicized. They have their own KPIs that they're working on and things that they're looking at. There's a lot of... A lot of things that go on in a breakdown in, in a rugby game. And you could penalize any single thing. And even looking at the situation that happened in the Brumbies game this weekend, there's about six or seven different things that could have been pulled up and everyone's got a different opinion on it. So there would be some accountability there. O'Keefe would have been reviewed. They would be talking about it. But there's probably talks of things, the way that they want to referee breakdowns, the way they want to referee contact and yellow cards and things that we're just not being included on as the general rugby fan and and that's fine that's that's the system as it currently is if we make it too open it just criticizes everyone who would want to be a referee it's such a hard game as it currently is if we're going to critique every single call that is or isn't made then no one's going to want to do it yep yep agreed moving on to the next question from hugh 96 off topic was it smart to announce the wallaby squad at the same time the wallaroos were playing a test match or should they follow the All Blacks, which we're announcing on Monday after the Black Ferns play on Sunday? I think realistically, there's two parts of this question. The first one is, should it be named when it was on primetime television? Yes. Um, it's unfortunate that Wallaroos were playing at the same time, but it was announced on Channel 9, on the main channel, 10 o'clock on a Sunday, with coverage that goes across a sports Sunday, I think the show's called. So it includes yeah, coverage of every sport that's being played. Features a lot of uh, Nine's main sports, so um, motorsports, a little bit of rugby, but rugby league predominantly. It's great exposure to have it announced then. Unfortunately, it doesn't tie into the Wallaroos schedule. 
Um, but if we're waiting to release it after the Wallaroos have played, um, then we don't have that free-to-air coverage that's free for other people who would just have the TV on on a Sunday morning and just see, yeah. oh, look, the Wallabies have been announced and wouldn't see that. So yeah. it's a hard one. Um, looking comparing it to New Zealand, New Zealand rugby just gets so much more exposure. It's so much easier to put a wall of, uh, All Blacks naming up on a Monday on free-to-air television. Most people will watch it. In Australia, we just currently don't sit with that situation. I did see a comment on on this post from Hugh, I think it was Craig or Balumba um, who yep. did mention that it might have been a good idea to put it after the Wallaroos games and get some people tuning in after the game, get to watch the last 15 minutes or so. But still, that's behind the stand paywall, so you're not getting that free-to-air exposure, which yeah, I think ultimately yeah. is why they went with this model. And um, I just want to do a bit of a shout-out to Mark McCartney, who is the um, Rugby Australia comms person who responded to the post explaining some of the decision-making behind RA with the timing of the announcement and everything. So, yeah, good credit to him for being transparent with the reasons why and just saying it was nothing against the Wallaroos whatsoever. It was an opportunity to get primetime airing of the Wallabies squad announcement, and that was it. It was unfortunate that it clashed with when the Wallaroos were playing, but there was really no other alternative. Um, and a lot of the broadcasting issues around when the Wallaroos were playing are World Rugby related because they own the broadcasting rights. So. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting um, little bit tidbit that he provided, which helps explain the situation. Now, mate, got a question here from Tim yeah, Foster. So Tim Might Foster get you to read this one sends out. in a question from Facebook and he says, with the Wallaby squad being named um, this week and <clears> the <throat> Australia A squad being announced on Wednesday, do we think that the guys that missed out on the Wallabies would be named in that Australia A program? And ultimately, does the decision of who gets picked in that Australia A program sit with Dave Rennie or Jason Gilmore? Does it... He, who who do we, he, he's asking who do we think is the decision maker there about around who gets the game time who gets included in that squad Dave Rennie from a Wallabies perspective or Jason Gilmore purely from an Australian A perspective Dave Rennie without a shadow of a doubt from Wallabies perspective I mean in our conversation with John Menenti which will be coming out as a second pod for the week um, he was talking about how some of the dynamics between the new contracting system that they're going to be having player availability um, for players like Simon Karevi and the like. The Wallabies are the pinnacle. They're the ones that get the final say and he uh, can put in requests, but basically he has to deal with what the Wallabies want. It'll be exactly the same as this situation. Jason Gilmore is to do a job, which is to prepare players for Wallabies selection and Wallabies play. And so Dave Rennie will be his immediate boss. And so he does what Dave says. It will be interesting to see, and we haven't got official confirmation around the test eligibility requirements for this Australia mm. A program, and that's yep. something that I have seen spoken about. Whether a player, say, Seru Uru, for example, who missed out on inclusion in the Wallaby squad, is up there as a really form uh, second-row lock option for Australia. Fiji and Bourne, so qualifies for both at the moment. Um, does he get included in that Australia A program? Would he want to play for Australia A? If he does, can he then... Does he then need to sit down that three three year three, three year, year yep. um, time frame before he can then go and play for Fiji, or because he's playing for Australia A, does that mean that he's aligning with Australia? My uh, my thought process around this would be that this Pacific Nations um, Cup Championship, whatever it's called, uh, is officially run by World Rugby. So I imagine, other than the Australian A team that's being represented, it's the national teams for Fiji, Samoa, and Tonga. 
So all of those players have to go through the world rugby eligibility laws to be included and to be able to play. I think that the same would have to be, it would only be fair if it was the same for Australia. I wouldn't want Australia to have a leg up and say that they could pick anyone they want and it doesn't count for international eligibility um, in the Australia program. So that might be why Sarah Uru may not be picked on Wednesday because he might be looking or in talks with Fiji. We'll see what happens. Um, Sheepy sends in a question on Twitter. Is anyone in Australia actually going to watch the final? <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. I'm already talking about going to the pub before a thing I've got on that evening um, with a man of mine. So, yeah, I think so. It's a good Bledisloe preview. It's going to be a cracking game to the two genuinely best teams within the competition going at it. Um, yeah, I think there'll be about be awesome. six people in Canberra that'll probably watch it. Yeah, probably six. It just hurts too much. Yeah, understandably so. Uh, next question from Craig Bowers. Can you get Ben O'Keefe to explain why this wasn't a penalty whilst Lamb not supporting his own body weight was just minutes earlier? And he gives a photo of Luke Romer going for the um, turnover. We've already spoken about that. so Well, he's actually asking us, can have. we get Ben O'Keefe on? And realistically, uh, Rev has had Ben O'Keefe on as a as a guest on his Let's podcast. Hit so Let's hit up, Rev. So there is an option there. There is a little bit of a, a little bit of a, an opening. We might be able to see what we can work out but it would be hard to sit here and, and question him and, uh, and get him to explain his decisions in that process as an Australian rugby fan. I feel very awkward talking to the guy, but really I should just summon up the courage and we, we should just do it if we were to get him on. Well, there's um, a few, Michael there's Tomlinson. A few, there are a few uh, questions to ask him. I mean, he made that call against Marika Corabetti, the red card. He's made this one. It's, yeah, do you just yeah, hate yeah. Australian rugby, Ben? Do you really hate yeah, that yeah. much? Of course he doesn't. He was great in that pod. He oh. went for a rugby fixation. Anyway, Michael Tomlinson... How did Fraser McWright miss out on the Wallaby squad? He's been consistently best Aussie seven throughout Super season, or at least on par with Hooper. Shouldn't we be cultivating these types of players, not turning them away? Um, excitingly, we are cultivating him, and we are not turning him away by him having a significant role mm. within the Australia A program. Um, I think that the conversation will be he's the heir apparent for that seven position. Um, he's been absolutely brilliant, and he's not going to get game time ahead of Michael Hooper. As good as Fraser McWright is, he doesn't have the experience and the quality consistently that Michael Hooper does um, across so many years and across over well over 100 tests. So, look, you pick Hooper every day of the week, and if he goes down, then McWright starts. Easy. I think Samu starts at the moment. Um, but, yeah, at the... at the moment, it just makes more sense for Fraser's development to be playing three games against international opposition in Australia A than to be holding yep. tackle pads at, at Wallabies training all week. So I can understand yep. why he's not included. And that's a good succession plan, realistically. I mean, at the moment, this is the starting. This is the start. Australia is the start. We've got three tests. Ideally, it would be more. And we'll be interesting to see if we can tour with the Australia A team later in the year and maybe play some junior England sides or Irish sides or whatever when we get over there in Europe. But um, like yep. the Saxons or whatever they're called. So a uh, lot of potential there. A lot of potential. Well, mate, why don't we finish things up there? It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure chatting on the pod with you. And don't forget, team, this is the first of two episodes that's out this week. Second pod will be out on Wednesday morning with John Menenti, the head of the Rugby 7 Men's Program. So thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Have a wonderful week and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.